Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have the opportunity to talk with Vernon Smith, who is a Nobel Prize winner in Economic Sciences 2002 for his groundbreaking work in experimental economics. He was recently in Utah to give a uh, talk to uh, USU, the annual George S. Eccles Memorial Lecture in Economics at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, speaking on understanding recessions since 1929, focusing on the relationship between the housing mortgage markets and market volatility. We'll want to talk about that as well. Uh, Vernon Smith is president and founder of International Foundation for Research in Experimental Economics. Um, got his uh, bachelor's degree, interestingly, in uh, electrical engineering. We'll talk about that, Professor, and uh, then went on to economics, University of Kansas and uh, Harvard. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, received a Nobel Prize in economics uh, 2002 for his work in experimental economics and uh, has published uh, many books and uh, articles. Welcome to the program, Vernon Smith. Very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. That's an interesting transition. Maybe start there, electrical engineering, but at a certain point you decided to go into economics. Well, uh, my father was a machinist and die maker, so I grew up with a great deal of interest in how things work. And my father had an eighth grade education, but he could make anything, he could fix anything. You know, he was very a very skilled uh, man. So I uh, had I, I developed an interest in engineering. I know my father; if he had ever had the opportunity to go to college, he would have wanted to study engineering. And actually, I was in physics most of the time. And electrical engineering at Caltech was, at that time, was in the division of mathematics and physics. And I did change my uh, curriculum a little bit in the senior year, and as a result, I got the degree in electrical engineering. But the background was, was you know, very much in math and, and science. But already by probably about the second third, second or third year that I was at Caltech, I pretty well decided I probably wouldn't continue. I was going to finish my degree. It had been very hard to get into Caltech, and I wasn't. I was going to. I was going to finish it out, and I took a course in economics as a senior, and I got really interested in it, and. Uh, and I thought, and I did a little bit of work in the library to find out a little bit more about what economics was. And so I decided, well, when I finish, I'm going to go back to Kansas, go to the University of Kansas, get a master's degree in economics, and then just see what, how that goes. So that's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. And I just, from then on, I never looked back. I went on to Harvard in economics, and so that was my career. Hmm. Tell me about experimental economics. I understand this, this, for you at least, started in the classroom, 1950s, Purdue. Yes. And, well, this is, a, I think, a residue from my deep interest in how things work. And economics is a pretty, as it was taught, and as people understood it and studied it in my years at Harvard, and that was a very common kind of graduate education, uh, there were just a huge number of unanswered questions. Uh, and in particular, things like supply and demand theory, which was kind of the bread and butter of introductory economics. Uh, I realized when I got to Purdue, as my first year as an assistant professor and was teaching introductory economics, I realized I didn't really know anything about the connection between this theory and what people actually do on the ground. What, 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 you know, how does this relate to what actually people do in markets? And I had been, at Harvard, I had been exposed. There was a professor there, Chamberlain, who did a little classroom experiment. 
Now, I didn't take his class, but at Harvard, what you would do often, if you had had any background, and of course, I had a master's degree, if you had some um, pretty good background in economics, you kind of shopped around. You you would go to many different classes the first couple of meetings and then decide which ones you were going to take for credit. Well, I didn't take Chamberlain's class because I'd had a really good course at the University of Kansas in the subject he was teaching. So I actually I knew his book as a result of that. But Ed Chamberlain had a, on the first day, he did a little demonstration experiment that was, he was setting the stage for his subject, which was the theory of monopolistic competition. And he kind of wanted a demonstration to show that markets didn't work. Competitive markets didn't work. And, well, I won't go into that, uh, the details of that experiment could take us uh, off base. But uh, most people, the students at Harvard thought that was kind of a silly exercise. And I remember not really appreciating it either at the time. And uh, as being any uh, that you could do anything of substance with it, and also he kind of used it in a very self-serving way. You see, so uh, so a few years later, my first year at Purdue, I'm teaching introductory economics, and I'm very much aware of the things that I don't know, <laughs> and. So I started thinking about Chamberlain's experiment. And I thought, you know, that's actually a pretty good idea. But there were some problems with the experiment. He only had one trading session. People didn't have a chance to gain any experience. And also, they just circulated and made trades. And I thought, Suppose we organize the market like uh, would, would be the case at the New York Stock Exchange or the Chicago Commodity Market Pits or something like that. So I thought, well, let me find out how they trade. This isn't part of economics. You see, the, the old finance books always had – they were very institutional oriented. They tell you how, how things – how, how, how the trading worked at the Post and the New York Stock Exchange or in the commodity markets. So I got went to the library and I get this book called The Stock Market by Leffler. I'll never forget it. <laughs> and, uh, and I found out the procedures for bid-ask trading, what, what was called the double auction, two-sided auction market, both buyers and sellers active. So I thought, okay. I'll create the supply and demand conditions like Ed Chamberlain did in the market, but I'll, I'll use this institutional procedure for the trading. So I decided to do that. See, this was in the fall of 1955 that I sort of figured this out, thinking ahead to my to the new semester coming up, and I decided, you know, I'm going to do this experiment with my students the first day before they've been contaminated by reading anything, before they know anything about supply and demand, I'll do this experiment. Uh, so I did. And I repeated it. So that is, there would be a period of trading, a, a time period, and then we would, that would be like Monday in the market, and then we, and then we would repeat Tuesday with the same condition, so we had a series of trading periods. Well, the, the contract prices converged to the equilibrium, the competitive equilibrium of supply and demand. And of course, nobody in that class knew anything about supply and demand. They wouldn't have the foggiest idea what it was if you had mentioned it. Uh, I thought, wow. And of course, the, the way we taught uh, that theory in those days was that this is kind of like a the competitive market is like an ideal. 
you wouldn't actually get it in the real world unless people had complete knowledge. They'd have to know what the supply and demand was and all that sort of thing. That's one of the stories that we told. The other story we would tell is, well, everybody in the market need to be a price taker. Well, but that begged the question as to who makes price. And here was a double auction as a bid-ask market. Buyers announce bids. Sellers announce ask. So you've got a, a bid-ask spread at any given time. A new bid has to, by a buyer, needs to be uh, higher than the standing bid. A new ask by a seller needs to be a lower. So there's rules like that with New York Stock Exchange trading. So everybody, I mean, everybody is as much a price maker as a taker, you see. So you contract, a buyer could contract by accepting the standing ask of a seller, or he could contract if some seller accepted his bid. So it was that. Well, one of the things that turned out that I learned was people get into this very quickly. They've never seen it before. But they don't have any trouble picking up. And, and these markets converged by about the third period of trading. And that kind of astounded me. My education did not prepare me for this at all. And so basically I thought, well, there must be something wrong with the experiment. <laughs> well, to shorten the story and subsequent semesters when I would teach. I'd always begin with this. And then I also got so I would go into other people's classes on the first day and I would do the experiment in their, their class. Well, and I changed the supply and demand conditions. I moved them all around. These things always converged. So that ended up, and then I started to in, introduce real monetary payments. I made a lot of over the, over the years, made a number of changes. So in 1962, I published my first paper on uh, experimental competitive markets. And that paper was cited in the 2002 Nobel Award. I mean, the, the you know, they, the Nobel Committee on Economics has a statement as to why, you know, you are uh, receiving this honor, and that paper was one of the key papers. So that launched me on what turned out to be an incredible uh, new learning experience that had nothing to do with my previous education. <laughs> as sometimes happens. That's, isn't yeah. that true? Uh, Vernon Smith is with us. Uh, he is uh, a Nobel Prize winner, so we just made reference to uh, for his work in experimental economics. We're talking about that. We're going to be talking about uh, understanding recession since 1929. That's the subject of his talk at Utah State University recently. Uh, he focused on the relationship between housing, mortgage, mortgage markets, and market volatility. Uh, Vernon Smith gave the uh, annual George S. Eccles Memorial Lecture in Economics at the John M. Huntsman School of Business uh, recently on the USU uh, campus. And Dr. Smith was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences 2002 for his work in experimental economics. He's the president and founder of International Foundation for Research in Experimental Economics and uh, teaching does work at Chapman. Chapman University in Orange, California. And we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, more with uh, Vernon uh, Smith, experimental economics, housing, mortgage markets, and other topics. Following break. This is Lloyd Berenson, director of the Bear River Health Department. How do you know if it's safe to go outside when PM2 levels are elevated? The cause of our unhealthy air is particulate pollution that is 2.5 micrograms or smaller. Often you'll hear this called PM 2.5. While it's still okay for most people to go outside on these days, everyone is different and health decisions should be made on actual pollution levels and individual sensitivity. For those who are more vulnerable to air pollution, such as children, those with asthma, heart or lung conditions, or the elderly, care should be taken to stay indoors. Reducing outside activity when pollution reaches high levels will reduce short-term health effects. 
The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our community engagement reporting project. To join our public insight network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source. Get your creative juices flowing. Utah Public Radio wants you to design the next UPR mug. Draw, paint, or photograph your way to the top design as voted on by UPR listeners. What could be cooler than having your artistic creation enshrined forever on the side of a public radio mug? Simply create a design that reflects your interpretation or appreciation of UPR. The entry deadline is Monday, February 3rd. For ideas and submission information, just go to upr.org. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering honey crumb granola, cinnamon monkey bread, and vegetarian quiche. We're back with uh, Vernon Smith. He gave a talk recently on the USU campus called, or uh, on understanding recession since 1929, focusing on the relationship between housing, mortgage markets, and market volatility. Uh, That's the annual George S. Eccles Memorial Lecture in Economics at the John M. Huntsman School of Business. Dr. Smith was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences 2002 for his groundbreaking work in experimental economics. Dr. Smith, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit more about uh, what experimental uh, economics is. You're quoted in a publication uh, a few years ago from George Mason University. Let me just quote this. We take propositions of economic theory and we test them with real people in controlled settings. I guess that's that's the definition of yes, experimental yes, that's economics. that's a good, good way to describe it. Yeah. Maybe you could take a – is there something specific you could uh, tell us that, well, that you've worked on? Let me just say that uh, you know, I talked about my first supply and demand experiments where I discovered that markets work far better than I expected and that was conventionally thought that they would, they would work. And th- this was in the 1960s. Well, fast forward 20 years up into the 80s and I've been doing – a lot of experiments motivated by those original studies. But an experiment that hadn't been done was experiments having to do with assets that live beyond a given period and can be retraded. And uh, so we thought, well, well, we need to change the environment and look at, look at items that are not bought for final consumption but uh, and they can be bought and held and have value, but you can also resell them. And so we structured an experiment, pretty simple. We endowed people with sh- with with shares and money. And the shares, uh, ever at the end of every period, there was a dividend, a yield dividend declared on the shares, and. These shares had a fundamental value that we could explain to the subjects. And it's just the sum of the dividends, the expected dividends that you're going to receive over the life of the experiment. And each period, at the end of the period, there's a dividend draw, and you've used up one of, if it's a 15-period horizon experiment, you've used up one of the draws. There's only 14 left. So the value of of this asset would fall. So we thought we'll, we will begin with this simple environment. We expected people trade right at fundamental value. And then we will, from that baseline, we'll see if we can do anything to create bubbles, deviations from fundamental value. Well, we got bubbles right away. We were already getting them. We found if we bring people back a second and a third time, for three different sessions, then they would trade at the theoretically uh, correct fundamental value. So this became a research program, and, and notice this big contrast. If you're trading a perishable good for final consumption, these markets work really well. 
if you're trading something that can be retraded until people have had experience and, and realize that if you, you cannot make money by trading very far from fundamental value until they, until they ex actually experience that. It's not a matter of understanding. It's a matter of actually experiencing it. Then, then you can have these bubbles. Well, all, all of this background you see prepared me to look with, so shall I say, unique eyes at the Great Recession. Hmm. So a colleague of mine, Stephen Gerstadt, and we've actually just finished the book, oh, Rethinking, Rethinking Housing Bubbles, is the title of it, Cambridge University Press. It probably won't be out for another six to nine months. Um, well, one of the things that struck us very quickly not after we had digested, and of course everybody knows by now that the Great Recession was precipitated by the crash of a really big housing bubble. That housing prices grew all out of proportion to increases in income, increases in house rentals, and it was fueled by what I call funny money, credit. <laughs> and, and so those, those situations are just not sustainable. And we've seen the uh, really catastrophic consequences of that uh, bubbling up of house prices and then uh, crash. And where all the pain comes from is the fact that housing values fall against fixed mortgage debt, you see. And that plunges households into, many of them into what we call negative equity. Equity is just the difference between your value and, and you know, your mortgage, what you owe. And, uh, and we have, oh, I don't know what the latest figure is, but last year we had 22% of homeowners in negative equity. And well, that means not only those households are in trouble, but their banks are in trouble too because the banks are holding the mortgages. And they're holding uh, something they've invested in that you couldn't sell for what they have, <laughs> they have lent on the asset. They can't sell the asset. So uh, they're simultaneously in trouble. So that's, that's the story of the Great Recession. But then my colleague and I went back to the Depression and from the Depression to the Great Recession, that's 14, there's 14 recessions. The first, if you think of the, there's 12 in between, the Depression and the Great Recession. We looked at all of them. Housing is a leading, housing expenditures, new construction is a leading indicator of 11 of the last 14 recessions. We were pretty impressed <laughs> that it's not new, it's not a new thing for housing to be a source of instability for the economy. Now, most of these recessions, the post-war recessions, are nearly, not nearly as bad as the Great Recession, nor as bad as the Depression. Well, housing didn't crash as much. It, it wasn't bid up as big. So, so we've documented that. And, well, from the perspective of an experimentalist, you have, you see, you think of housing as a very long-lived good. You build these, and how long do they last? 75 to 100 years, they're out there if, you're, if they're maintained. And if you're building those and you're using credit to do it, far in excess of the growth in income, you see, you're, you're setting the stage for this uh, households getting really into a crunch. And as I say, most in most recessions, it wasn't, hasn't been that bad because the houses weren't bid up as bad. So, so the good news is 
that what we call, and I call it a balance sheet crisis. Balance sheets crises that come from housing, fortunately, are rare. We get, we get one about every 80 years. <laughs> and so economists, expert policymakers are not accustomed to thinking in terms of recessions as coming from kind of a balance sheet uh, crunch. And as a result, I think we don't understand what the best approach to this is. In fact, by the way, there aren't any good approaches. There, there, no matter how you approach it, it's going to be painful. If you want to avoid the pain, don't get there in the first place. Hmm. Can, can this be prevented? Well, it means, I think, you have to be pretty r- rigorous in terms of requiring subs- substantial down payments. You need a cushion in there of equity from the beginning with the households to protect both them from the consequences of a, uh, of a decline in housing prices and also uh, their banks. Now, one of the things that came out of the Depression was a tradition for amortizing loans and having about 30% down payments. That was a consequence of kind of all of the, the debris created by the, the, uh, the depression. And uh, the, 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 the uh, kind of the rebuilding of institutions. But we lost that tradition. See, by the, by the 90s and into 2000, we were starting to, both in public housing programs and also the private sector, uh, with, with, with prices going up, the temptation to uh, loan people with, uh, money to buy homes with little or no down payment couldn't be resisted. And the thought was, well, it won't make any difference. They're going up in price, and then you see it, it isn't a problem. But if everybody's thinking that way, you can expect a disaster sooner or later. Um, so uh, it's uh, it's very difficult, of course, to get policies rigorously followed because everybody kind of wants to do good and in particular to help disadvantaged people. One idea was to help them to get into homes, and then we make them better off. We get them in a higher, better net wealth position. Uh, but if you do that without it, it being motivated on the ground by uh, a good work ethic, a savings ethic. You know, we, we, one of the things we found, we people found, was it's stable neighborhoods or neighborhoods where people own their homes. Well, but that's because they saved their money, got a down payment, <laughs> and then bought a home. That doesn't mean that if you shoehorn people into a home, uh, with a little down payment, you'll necessarily change change it in the so so uh, the procedures that whereby you create an environment are, are really very very important here, and that's what became one of the justifications, of course, for uh, subsidies to low income people was it will help to create stable neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. We're talking with uh, Vernon Smith on the program uh, today. Uh, we have been talking about. Uh, Housing bubbles, recessions, uh, that's the subject, uh, recessions, subject of his talk recently on the Utah State University campus, understanding recessions since 1929, focusing on the relationship between housing, mortgage markets, and market volatility. 
Uh, Vernon Smith is uh, a Nobel Prize winner for his groundbreaking work in experimental economics. We've been talking a bit about that as well. Uh, he gave the annual George S. Eccles Memorial Lecture in Economics to the John N. Huntsman School of Business on the OSU campus recently. He's president and founder of International Foundation for Research in Experimental Economics. He teaches at uh, Chapman University in uh, California. Received his uh, bachelor's in electrical engineering at uh, Caltech. Um, master's and a Ph.D. in economics from Kansas and Harvard, respectively. Back with more with the Vernon Smith following break. Utah State University Online was recently recognized by U.S. News and World Report for its online bachelor's degree program based upon student engagement, faculty credentials, peer reputation, student services, and technology. More than 200 universities were ranked and included public, private, and for-profit institutions. Congratulations to USU for its recent recognition. Previously on Car Talk. I uh, got on the cellular phone and I called the uh, highway patrol and I asked for a state trooper and a tow truck and a fire truck. Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> and by the way, uh, the highway's on fire. <laughs> and a regular cheese pizza. <laughs> as long as they were coming out. <laughs> yeah. For more well-reasoned car advice, join us this week for Car Talk. Every Saturday morning at 10... And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Green Valley Spa and Resort in St. George, offering a poetry salon the fourth Thursday of every month, featuring booked poets, singers, and songwriters. Details at greenvalleyspa.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are hearing a conversation with Dr. Vernon Smith, who was in Logan to give the George S. Eccles Memorial Lecture in Economics. That was in November. And uh, so I sat down with him at that time, and we're uh, playing this interview back at this time. Uh, you are welcome, however, to join this conversation. We will send these uh, comments and questions to Dr. Smith and get uh, responses on the air for you uh, when he responds. Uh, we do have a couple of emails right now. I'll read those for you. Uh, Charles says, your thoughts on how markets cope with externalities, such as air pollution, for example. Good question. Uh, Charles, we'll get that uh, forwarded on to Dr. Uh, Smith. And uh, Stephen, uh, Steve says, your guest this morning is pioneer of experimental economics. I'm wondering if he has any thoughts on another new branch of economics that's now being pioneered, historical economics. I happen to be reading The Roman Market Economy by Peter Temin, in which Professor Temin is working out two millennia after the fact how the ancient Roman economy worked and the implications of that for people living in the Roman Empire. As your guest described in his own pioneering work, there wasn't much to go on before he devised his own methods. The same seems to be true with historical economics, and Professor Temin works closely with archaeologists and historians as with economics ec economists in his work. Any thoughts? Uh, thanks, Steve. We'll uh, Steve, forward that on to uh, Professor uh, Smith. Get the responses uh, back to you. Thanks for those comments. The email is upraxis at gmail.com. We're back with Vernon Smith. He is winner of the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences in 2002 for his groundbreaking work in experimental economics. He gave the annual George S. Eccles Memorial Lecture in Economics at the John M. Huntsman School of Business recently on the USU campus. He's president and founder of International Foundation for Research in Experimental Economics. He teaches at Chapman University in California. Uh, Dr. Smith, um, I'd like to talk about, uh, and I'm sure you get these questions a lot, this is where I think a lot of lay people are very interested in economics, and that is the intersection with government and what should government be doing. I noticed uh, that you um, were opposed to the uh, the stimulus in, in 2009. I wonder if you tell us why. Well, when you have large numbers of households in negative equity and the banks are stressed because the value of their investments may have fallen below the deposit claims on the bank banks then the normal flows of demand and supply and earnings behave differently uh, Households tend to hunker down to kind of 
if you still have a job, uh, hunker down to try to reduce their debt. Banks aren't lending because they're trying to rebuild their balance sheets. And that's a different world than one in which households are predominantly in, household owners are predominantly in positive, comfortable equity, and the same thing for their banks. And that's a world in which we have known for some time that monetary policy, low interest rates, uh, are, 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 are not, for example, in the, great, in the Depression and also in the Great Recession, of very low interest rates and monetary ease uh, basically don't give you the kind of recoveries that you would get in, from minor recessions by doing that. And what I think is not widely appreciated is that fiscal policy, where you do deficit, uh, uh, where the government expands its budgets and borrows in order to spend. See, see, very commonly it's been thought that, well, when monetary policy fails, fiscal policy, deficit financing will work. Now, I... I first learned that at Harvard from Alvin Hansen. In fact, it was 50 years ago. It was 1962 <laughs> when I was uh, taking 62-63. Uh, there was this view that what the only thing that eventually got us out of the Depression was the Second World War, that spending started to increase and that that's what brought us out of the war. And so the notion was that if you ever got into a bad depression, you could just spend your way out. And But I've since come to see that as fallacious. And the, and the reason is, you see, we started, the, the uh, wartime spent, spending started to pick up in 1940. Well, but you had had 10 years of what I would call balance sheet repair. People had been rebuilding their balance sheets. Homeowners were getting back into positive equity. Long period of, uh, that was very, a, a huge number of bankruptcies and failures. Well, that cleans up people's balance sheets. Those assets uh, of failed enterprises get sold off at market value, and those who buy them uh, they're getting, they're not incurring any obligations that's greater than the value of what it is they're buying. So those balance sheets are all being cleaned up. So what's being left out of that prescription is you had all that balance sheet repair going on. That doesn't mean that if the same amount of spending in 1940 started to give you recovery that it would have happened in 1930. And I think that's exactly what we found out. That's what I learned from government policy in response to the Great Recession. We had huge monetary ease. The Bush and Obama stimulus, stimuluses. Uh, the Bush stimulus was, I think, around $300 billion, And Obama rounded that up to, out to about a trillion. And... Everybody was very disappointed that that didn't have the expected effect. We're continued to be stuck and stuck in, in, a, in a kind of a low growth. Now, things didn't get as bad in the Great Recession as they did in the Depression, and that's probably because of this intervention. I think monetary policy did have the effect of preventing the, uh, as, as large a crash. But we're carrying, we were carrying those damaged balance sheets. And, and I think until that's cleaned up, uh, we can't expect the kind of recovery that, that we normally have after a minor recession where housing comes booming back. You see, we've got this huge stock of homes built far ahead of, of earnings and income. <laughs> And we've got to work that off. So uh, am I hearing you correctly that, that some government intervention is, is all right? We just have to do it in the right way? 
I think, uh, well, I think an in- intervention that was wrong was basically the whole too big to fail movement. Now, you see, you had the two or three largest banks. Uh, the policymakers were concerned that those banks, we would have a catastrophic failure in the economy if we allowed those banks to go under. And there was a major intervention, you see, uh, to uh, prevent that. So a lot of those toxic assets, and, and that just is assets that that are not as valuable as uh, they're not worth as much as you lent people on them. <laughs> those those the, the mortgage assets that are backed by the value of homes and the value of homes, if you see, have have declined. So a lot of those toxic assets were transferred to the government. Well, you're not getting rid of them in the economy. There's still a burden on future output. You're not getting rid of them. And so it's a, it, it, when the recovery comes, you have these claims, you see, that are going to come out of the, reco- of the growth and output. And a lot of the assets were still in the banks. We didn't get them all. And so uh, the large banks like Citigroup, Bank of America, uh, were very reluctant to lend. And and the problem with when you have a banking system that has expanded beyond what can be justified by the earnings of the assets, the only solution I know to that is what's called bank failure. <laughs> now, there were plenty of banks failed over at the FDI, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, from 2008 through 2012, about 440 banks went under. They failed. These tended to be the small to medium-sized banks. Those assets got resold, distributed at market value. In other words, their, their, their original inflated value was now remarked to market value, and they went into the hands of, of good, clean, whole banks. <laughs> so in other words, those balance sheets were cleaned up. That's what failure means. You know, it's painful. Uh, but the problem is, and if you prevent that pain, the problem is that you stretch now. You, you, you prevent uh, incumbent investors from taking that hit, but also any new lending, those the earnings don't go to the new investors. They're diluted by the claims of the older investors. And that's the thing that makes it recovery difficult. What yeah. about the, 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 that question of painful versus catastrophic? So, and, and you brought up the argument that was made for, for, for the too big to fail. Some of these institutions just so big, the argument goes that in stipulating your arguments that you just made, um, that it would just be so catastrophic potentially to the economy as a whole that uh, that we have to step in and and save them. Yes, and the downside is that of that is that the economy is still carrying somewhere on someone's balance sheet those toxic assets, and they are a drain on on future income and it and they and and that process also makes it harder to recover what do you it, think what do you think would have happened if uh, if they'd been allowed 
well, these big institutions would have been allowed to to fail. Uh, we, you know, would have been greater pain, but we would have gotten through it. What th- do you What do you think? I think they would have gone through bankruptcy, and I think we would be on the road to recovery. Hmm. You see, we are. See, two thousand and twelve, measured by depression time. Uh, two thousand twelve was the fifth year from the beginning of the downturn. If you go back to the Depression, that's 1934. 1929 to 1934, that's the five years. In 1934, gross national product grew 7.7%. It really started to surge back. It's true from a much lower level. We prevented things from going as becoming as bad as they did then, but it's not clear that we haven't just stretched the pain out over more years because we're stuck in this low growth rut. And here's the problem. We haven't had experience with this kind of a world before. We don't have experience, have not had experience with a massive downturn, a, a kind of a massive bailout, of the banks, so we don't have the kind of historical experiments that we experience that would give you an idea of what the consequences of that are. We uh, are unfortunately out of time. Much more we could say on this, and you can certainly respond to this program on our website, upr.org, or to upraxcess at gmail.com. We've been talking with Vernon Smith. He is a Nobel Prize winner in economics, won his prize in 2002 for his groundbreaking work in experimental economics. His talk recently on the USU campus was on understanding recessions since 1929, focusing on the relationship between housing, mortgage markets, and market volatility. That was the annual George S. Eccles Memorial Lecture in Economics at the John M. Huntsman School of Business. And uh, Vernon Smith is president and founder of International Foundation for Research and Experimental Economics, teaches at Chapman University. Uh, tell us again the book you've got coming out in a few months. It's Rethinking Housing Bubbles. Oh, that'll, that'll be interesting reading. It'll be coming out in a, in a few months. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. And uh, for producers uh, Katie Swain and uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. 67-year-old Susan Savage, a native of Leeds, Utah, talks to her friend Martha about working alone during the 90s at her family's secluded high-elevation ranch at the base of the Pine Valley Mountains. So your family had this remote ranch, then other land down in Leeds. The two pieces of land had to work together and so there was the summer pasture at the ranch. Of course the farm down home was raising the feed crop, the hay, and then the cattle would be brought down in the winter and fed there while the pastures were regaining. When I saw you on your four-wheeler on a regular basis late in the afternoon driving up Oak Grove Road with your dog or a bale of hay, I just thought, wow, she's going up there by herself. My grandfather had completed a squatter's ride on the Danish ranch, which is about seven miles west of where you live. And uh, then the ranch came to Dad. And, uh, sorry, I used to go up there with him and I used to worry about him being up there alone because he'd run into some unfortunate situations with people, trespassers and things like that. Then we had farmed and ranched together, and when he passed away, then I continued with that. And I just mentioned worrying about him because I would have thought I would be worried, you know, going up there. But I loved it. I never was worried. So your father, he didn't have a son to help him work the land. He didn't. What did that mean for you as a daughter? Well... That was our relationship with our parents, was working with them. You know, we didn't go very many places, but we worked together all the time. We worked out in the fields, and we tromped hay when he had draft horses and hauled hay that way. And we helped with the baling, and we helped with the fruit. You were going seven miles by yourself 
on this four-wheeler. Did you ever break down or encounter a trespasser? Or? I did. I did have a couple of breakdowns. I got stuck up in the ranch once with a four-wheeler and couldn't get out. And I knew my mom would be worried, so it was in the winter. I had on a heavy coat, so I loaded the tools that I didn't want somebody to steal. <laughs> and I ran as much of the way as I could. And when I got home, she was watching TV, and she hadn't thought much about it. <laughs> and one time I ran out of gas on the road. I'd gone up in the winter and needed to make another trip with hay and was hurrying before dark and forgot to refill the gas tank. Trespassers, various experiences, people used to tell me that I should um, carry a gun, that I should learn how to use a gun. But my best thing was a little notebook or a little camera. And I ran into a man once who was there shooting with his son. And, you know, people would always say, is this private property? And I would say, well, it's fenced. There's a pond. There's a cabin. And, you know, it's marked. And he wasn't going to leave. But anyway, so I would just say to them, well, what I do is I just write down the license plate number. And then if we do lose animals or have problems, we know where to start looking. And then they would leave. So it, was, it worked out well for me. So you never carried a gun? I didn't, huh? There are cougar there? You never worried about that? I didn't. I used to go up, oh, at 3 or 4 in the morning when I was teaching school to take hay. And uh, I used to put the hay out under a big tree sometimes. And I remember one time the dog looking up in the tree and growling. And I thought we might have company, but who knows. That dog looked particularly intelligent. He seemed like he was a major companion on that four-wheeler. He was. What was his name? Freckles. Freckles. It was a good life. The Danish Ranch and the farm in Leeds operate today, working in tandem under the stewardship of Susan's nephew and his family. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Are you at risk for diabetes, heart disease, and other chronic diseases? And how do you know? During an annual exam, your doctor can take a careful look at your numbers, including your cholesterol and triglyceride levels, your blood pressure, and more. Knowing your numbers is an important part of keeping your heart healthy, and it can save your life. It can help you and your doctor know your risks and mark the progress you're making toward a healthier you. Healthy numbers mean a healthy heart. If you follow a healthy lifestyle, eat a balanced diet, get regular exercise, and avoid smoking, you can even turn bad numbers around. Post the goals you need to reach on your refrigerator as a reminder to love your heart. Small changes can make a big difference. This is Dana Barrett, Wellness Coordinator for Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Waste not. Run your clothes washer and dishwasher only when they are full. You can save up to 1,000 gallons a month. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. And stay tuned for the Zesty Garden coming up next. It is now 10 o'clock. <laughs>